Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, 11 through 23, the title of the message today, Obedience from the Heart. Now, we started this chapter last Sunday, and we noted a clear shift in the Apostle Paul's letter from speaking of the doctrine of justification to now here in chapter 6, speaking of the doctrine of sanctification. So you might remember that justification is where God declares Christians righteous because of their union with him through faith. And we are saved from sin's penalty because God, the righteous judge, declares us righteous in Christ. In sanctification, what we're speaking of is the fact that we are now saved also from the power and dominion of sin in our lives. This separation or setting apart from sin has a definite starting point. That is at the moment of justification. But it continues throughout a believer's lifetime. We call this progressive sanctification. That is, we are to be making progress in sanctification until we die or the Lord comes again. We further noted last week that when it comes to a believer's relationship to sin, after professing Christ, we must avoid two dangerous extremes. One is the extreme of legalism. That is, we try to motivate people to be good with fear. We put lots of rules and regulations and punishments upon them. The other extreme is license. That is the perceived permission to sin without any consequences. And Paul was being accused at this moment in his life by his Jewish detractors as teaching license. That is, they, they believed if Paul was successful in convincing people that they were saved by grace alone, that they would just sin and sin and sin until society devolved into utter chaos. And the idea there is called antinomianism. It means against the law. They were accusing Paul of teaching people that the law had no importance or place in their life. And that, of course, is the farthest thing from the truth. Paul answered that objection very forcefully with a Greek phrase, meganoita, which means may it never be. Heavens no. Perish the thought. And we're going to see that phrase time and time again in Paul's writing and again here today. He goes on to show here in chapter 6 why such a thought that a person could be truly saved and after that sin more and more uh, is unconscionable for any true Christian. It's because we saw last week of this concept of the mystical union with Christ. That is because we are in Christ through faith. We share in his death and his burial and his resurrection. In fact, Paul says we are now dead to sin. That is, we are free from the power and dominion and control of sin over our lives. Simply put, once we're saved, for the first time in our lives, we have the ability not to sin. And a positive way of saying that is we have the ability to obey God's commandments. But their objection comes again. But Paul, Christians continue to sin after they're saved. They're right. Even folks that have been believers for decades still sin. Well, Paul is addressing that objection in our text today. Let's read it now. Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through the end of the chapter. Paul writes, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. 
And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were freed in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the hearing, the reading of his word. Now, you know that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the 66 books of the biblical canon to write exactly what he wanted to communicate. Now, that does not mean, however, that the biblical writers were automatons or robots. God, in his sovereignty, used each person's unique gifts and backgrounds and writing styles to communicate his truth. And it's very obvious from reading the Pauline literature that he possessed a very analytical mind and his writings reflect that. He, he was obviously trained in law and philosophy and history, rhetoric, and he brings all of that training under the authority of the Holy Spirit. And Paul's thought process and rhetorical training are on clear display here in chapter six, where he employs numerous literary devices to communicate divine truth and to refute his critics on that simple gospel. He begins with an imperative, which is simply a command. Look at it, verse 11. He says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Even so is a transitional word, sort of like therefore. It says, look to the verse just above it. He says in verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lived, he lives to God. So he says, just as Christ died one time, forever to be dead to sin and now forever alive to God because you are in Christ, that's the way you should live. You are no longer to be controlled by sin. You are no longer under its domain, but you are alive now to serve God. So he says, consider yourself dead to sin. Now that word consider there, some have taken that to mean, well, we're not really dead to sin. We just need to pretend that we are. That's not at all what he's saying. The word consider means to dwell upon, to think deeply upon. And so I said last week that that is really the key to making progress in sanctification. We, we talked about New Year's resolutions last week. And some people, by sheer willpower, can overcome some bad habits and do some good things in the year ahead. But he's not talking about willpower here. He's talking about resting and dwelling upon and considering, I think especially at the moment of temptation. Because remember, now that we're born again, we have the ability to, to obey God. 
And at that moment of decision, whether I'm going to obey God or obey my flesh, we need to consider that we are dead to sin and that we are alive to Christ. And so he gives the command to consider yourselves dead to sin. That's not a one-time act. That's an ongoing way of life. And then to that imperative, he gives us some prohibitions. He says, do this, don't do that. Look at verse 12. He says, therefore, that is because you consider yourself dead to sin, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body as sin, as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. He uses another transition word, therefore, that is in light of the fact that you're dead to sin and alive to God, here's two things you must not do. The first prohibition is this, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. That means to have dominion over you or to control you so that you have to obey its lust. Now, I often say as it comes to justification, we have no role in our salvation. It's all of God, right? He's the judge, we're the sinner, he must declare us righteous. We can't declare ourselves righteous, can we? We don't have the authority to do that. But when it comes to our sanctification, we play a role. How do I know that? Because he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Meaning, it's possible that we could let sin reign in our mortal body, right? And so it means that we participate in our sanctification. Well, how do we participate in our sanctification? Well, the Lord has given us what we call means of grace. That is uh, things that we can do and think about that promote our spiritual growth. What are some of those things? Just think in your own mind. Fellowshipping with other believers. Bible says when we come together, that's why we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together because when we do, we're spurring one another on to good work. So you need a local church family to help in your sanctification process. What about reading the word? The Bible says of itself that is our milk and our meat. We can't starve ourselves spiritually and expect to make progress in sanctification. Prayer, giving, all these disciplines that uh, godly people over the centuries have cultivated in their lives promote sanctification. And so we do, in fact, have a role in our own sanctification. And the main role is not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. That is not to go back to serving sin now that we've been set free. See, sin has no right to reign in your soul any longer. That's one of the things that Jesus accomplished at the cross. He set us free from the dominion of sin. But we still have to live in these bodies, don't we? And so long as we live in these bodies of death, Paul calls them, these flesh suit, we still have to battle sin. We're going to see that very clearly next week in chapter 7 where Paul describes in graphic detail his own struggle in the flesh with sin. The point is we don't have to obey it. That's why he says do not let it reign in your body. Now there's a second prohibition. He says do not go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, but rather instruments of righteousness. So what are the members of your body? Now don't get confused here because several places in the New Testament, Paul uses the human body as a metaphor for the church, right? And some are hands and some are feet. You all hear that and, and know that. He's actually speaking of the human body now. He says, don't let the members of your body uh, be presented as instruments of unrighteousness. Well, what are the members of our body? Well, the various parts of it including, I take it, your brain. 
We know that sin is not just a sin of the action. Oftentimes it's a sin of the mind. And so oftentimes the Apostle Paul talks about what we think about, what we dwell upon should be those things that promote sanctification. But when we allow our mind to dwell on sinful things, we are presenting our mind, which I think is the most valuable part of a human body, to be instruments of righteousness. What about our lips? The Bible has a lot to say about things we say and how the lips, James, the brother of Jesus, says the tongue through which speech comes forth can set the whole world on fire if we use it inappropriately. What about our feet? The Old Testament says that one of the things the Lord hates are feet that are swift to evil, hands that shed innocent blood, ears that need to be set aside, not to listen to gossip and things that are untrue. And so that's what he means when he says, don't go on, that is as you did before you were born again, to present the parts of your bodies as instruments or tools of unrighteousness. See, there was a Greek philosophy in Paul's day that said that the body, the physical was meaningless. It was no good. And so they separated what you did in the body from your soul to the point where you could just sin, sin, sin in the body and it had no impact on your soul because they were separated. Paul didn't understand the body that way. He viewed the body as a tool and an instrument in the Lord's hand that could be used either for good or great evil. Many of the material things in the world, I guess all of them could fall into that category. Is money evil? No, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money can be used to feed orphans or it can be used to buy pornography. The human body can be used to carry the gospel to the nations or it can be used to do great evil. This is what Paul says, don't present your body to be used as a tool for evil, but rather for righteousness. That's why Paul later on says in Romans chapter 12, verse one, therefore I urge you brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and a holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That is, we constantly present our bodies and individual parts of our bodies to the Lord and say, use it for your glory. Lord, use my lips to encourage some soul today. Use my mind to think of ways that I can be a blessing to this community and to the church. Use my physical strength to glorify you in some way. So we've seen a, an imperative, a command, a couple of prohibitions. But next, Paul simply makes a declaration in verse 14 based on what he said so far. He says, for sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. Now, this is a very practical application of some very deep and complex doctrine. We are not to live as if sin has a claim of authority over us. He says, because we're no longer under law, but under grace. Now, a lot of people believe that this is an aha moment or a gotcha moment for Paul to say, oh, he, yet he does teach antinomianism. We're no longer under law, but under grace. You've probably met people that, you know, are doing something that's uh, obviously sinful and if you say something about it, they say, oh, well, I'm under grace, <laughs> not under law. Don't, don't put me in that legalism again. See, I told you the, the pendulum swings to extremes. And, and so when someone has come through a lifestyle of legalism, sometimes they go to the other extreme of license. 
and they think that they can sin and, and still bring glory to God. He says, no. You see, what Paul is communicating here is that we are children of a holy God, therefore we should live like it. I think what he's really speaking here is our motivation to obedience. Now, most of us who are adults, that there's a time where we can force our will upon our children, right? Just by the fact that we're much larger and, and they, they live in, in, in somewhat of a fear of, of people who are larger than them. But there comes a time where you recognize that doesn't work any longer, right? And I think that's what Paul is saying here. Yes, God who is sovereign and omnipotent could force his will upon any person, but he's speaking here of obedience from the heart. What the Lord seeks to do is not to reform you by getting you to follow a strict set of rules. He's looking to transform your heart from one of dullness and coldness and hardness towards him to one that's soft and malleable and useful to him. Now, Paul, I think, had scarcely pinned that verse that we are under grace and not law, that he knew immediately what his detractors were going to say. They would say, aha, gotcha. Paul, you're advocating lawless, lawlessness and debauchery. So once again, to preempt their criticisms, he uses a series of rhetorical questions. And questions or interrogatives to rebuff them. Look at verse 15. He says, what then? In other words, I know what you're thinking. Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? That was their logical conclusion. We're not under the law, that is under the authority or the dominion of the law, but we're now under the law or the covenant of grace. That means we can sin and sin and sin and with no consequences. What's Paul's response to that? What's that Greek phrase? May it never be. Perish the thought not in a thousand years. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? In other words, the question is, shall we use the truth that we are set free from the dominion of sin as license to sin? Paul says, no way. And then he, he uses this illustration, as, as we'll see in just a moment, of Roman slavery. Now, we tend to think of slavery from our own historical experience here in the United States of, of men stealing, where these uh, ruthless slave traders would go to Africa and they would uh, kidnap people, take them out of their own homeland and bring them here and sell them on an auction block. That was not the typical way that slaves became slaves in the Roman world. In fact, many, if not most of the Roman slaves, and there were millions of them, slaves, in uh, the Roman world were really what we would call indentured servants, where they would place themselves under the authority uh, for a lifetime of someone who was then obligated to care for them, and they were obligated to serve that master. So Paul says, don't you know that when you present yourself to someone as a slave or an indentured servant, you have to obey them, and you are slaves of the one you obey. And so he says, look, if you return to sending and presenting your body as, a, as an instrument of unrighteousness, even though legally you've been set free by the righteous judge, you've put yourself back into slavery. And he says, you don't have to do that and, and, and don't do that. And so uh, 
he, in verse 17, uses another literary advice, an, an exclamation. Exclamation is where we burst out, sometimes rather loudly, with enthusiasm. Paul says, but thanks be to God that through, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Now, don't forget in this deep theology that this is in the context of a personal letter that was being written by the Apostle Paul to the Christian believers there in the city of Rome. Now, for about three or four chapters, you'd be hard-pressed to know that because he was writing as if he was writing to a much broader audience. But now he comes back to speaking specifically to the Roman believers, and he says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, past tense, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. That seems to be a process, doesn't it? Where they are constantly becoming more like Christ. Isn't that what we said progressive sanctification is? It has a definite beginning point where you make a clean break from sin at the moment of justi justification. But over a lifetime, you are becoming more and more like the one that you serve. So he says, thanks be to God. That's uh, Paul's way of saying, praise the Lord. <laughs> Glory, hallelujah. You used to be a slave of sin, but now you obey a new master. Not out of fear of punishment. Remember, someone who's very powerful and strong can force someone to do their will. Sometimes we obey our masters, our bosses at work, not out of respect, but out of begrudgment. But now, he says, you have become obedient. How? From the heart. What do you think that means? I think that means God has transformed them and transformed them through regeneration until he's totally changed who they are and what their priorities are. See, before we were saved, we were slaves to sin. Someone says, don't you believe in free will? I said, yeah, we had the free will to choose our favorite sin when we were lost. You have now received through regeneration a desire to obey God. You are doing it out of a transformed heart. When my children were very small, their mother taught them a little song. And I've heard it so many times, I can nearly sing it, but I'm not going to. I will spare you. But the truth is, my wife learned it from her grandmother, Nancy Hoyer's mother, Mrs. Foster, who's now with the Lord, was a wonderful lady. And I know that because my wife has a keepsake. It's very precious to her. It's a little cassette tape that her grandmother made when she was four years old. My, my wife was four years old. And she played the piano and taught my wife this little song that she's now taught to our children. It goes like this. I sing a new song since Jesus came. Serve a new master. Wear a new name. Walk a new road. Have a new goal. Know a new peace down deep in my soul. He's speaking there of sanctification. That is, when we're born again, we become a new person. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. And so we have a new Savior. Therefore, we have a new master. We have a new name. We're no longer an enemy of God, but we're son or daughter of the Most High, a friend of Jesus. We walk a new road. We were on that path that leads to hell. We're now on that narrow path that leads to heaven. Have a new goal. 
our goal before we were saved was to serve self, right? Number one, now that we're born again, our goal is to glorify the Lord in word or deed. We have a new peace. That is, not only do we have a cessation of hostilities with our creator, there's that peace that passes human comprehensions that stand guard over our heart and mind through Christ Jesus. And where is that peace? It's down deep in my soul. <laughs> that is, it cannot um, be taken away. So he, he uses an exclamation there. He says, thanks be to God, as he dwelt on and he thought about his own new condition. But then I want to come back to that illustration that he's using of human slavery. See, slavery was ubiquitous in Paul's culture. It was everywhere. Some historians believe there were more slaves at some times in the Roman Empire than there were freedmen. Roman culture was divided between the freed and, and the slaves. And some in our own modern context have taken issue with the fact that Paul doesn't use his office as an apostle to advocate for what they'd call social justice. Why didn't Paul say we need to get rid of slavery? See, Paul understood, I believe, that as long as men were slaves to sin, there would never be any true justice. So Paul's goal, his ambition, his mission given to him by Christ on the Damascus Road was not to undo every social issue in the world. Rather, it was to help men to become free from the power of sin through the simple gospel. And I would say, without uh, preaching another sermon, that that's a good word for all of us today. The church's attempts to correct every perceived injustice in the world has historically caused the church to lose sight of its true purpose, and that is the Great Commission. It's good to give a cup of cold water. It's good to stand for truth. It's good to use our influence in the world for righteousness sake. But the primary means that God has used historically to bring about true change is through revival, through spiritual awakening and renewal through the simple gospel. So look again what he says in verse 18. He says, having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. So I'm going to use an illustration that you can relate to because... You, you live in this culture. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now you present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Remember the argument? If a person is born again through grace, that's going to make them a worse sinner. Paul says just the opposite. He says the more deeply you are committed to submitting yourself to unrighteousness, the more you're going to sin. But the more you're committed to Submitting yourself to God as an instrument or a tool of righteousness, the less frequent your sin is going to be. That is, it results in sanctification, which is the separation from sin over a lifetime. Verse 20, for when you were, that is past tense, slaves of sin, before you were saved, you were free in regard to righteousness. That is, you weren't under the domain of righteousness. You were under the domain of sin. Paul says, it's no wonder you behave the way you did. I think we evangelical Christians sometimes make a mistake of expecting lost people in our culture to behave like saved people. We shouldn't. Now, we have every right to expect people who claim to be saved to act like saved people. So he says in verse 21, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. He says, Why in the world, now that you've been set free from the dominion of sin, which you know led to hell and death, would you want to go back to living like that? It's illogical. 
Verse 22 says, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive that benefit resulting in sanctification and that outcome eternal life. <laughs> Wayne Grudem is a theologian that, uh, whose book we use sometimes around here to explain certain theological truths. And he doesn't use the term glorification. He uses a phrase like finalized sanctification. <laughs> that is the end of sanctification is glorification. It is heaven. See, the certain outcome of submitting the members of your body to sin is death. Just as what goes up must come down. If you submit yourself to sin, it results in death. But the certain outcome of submitting to Christ is sanctification. It's separation from sin. That's why I often say the only real test of genuine conversion is fruit. It's not that you were baptized or that you walked an aisle or you filled out a card. The true evidence that someone has been born again is a transformed life. Because the natural conclusion of submitting yourself to Christ is sanctification. It will happen. We can't serve two masters, though, Jesus said. You either love the one or hate the other. And so in conclusion today, I have some questions to ask. Number one is this, who's your master? Well, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day were offended by that question. And they said, we don't have any master. We're free men. <laughs> Never mind that uh, they were under the heel of the Roman government. But they thought of themselves as the captains of their own destiny. Well, Jesus says, no, you're either a master of God or you're master of the devil. In fact, he said it like this. He says, you are of your father who? The devil. And so the scripture describes regeneration in terms of a transfer from one kingdom to the other. That is, when you were born again, God transferred your eternal citizenship from the kingdom of darkness and sin, dominated by Satan, to the kingdom of light, or he calls it of his dear son. So the question is, who's master? Who is your master? It's either Christ or, or Satan. So how do I know the answer to that? Well, who are you serving? If you are submitting yourself, your body, the members of your body constantly to Satan to be used for his will, he's your master. But if you're resisting that and if you are considering yourself dead to sin and you're submitting parts of your body to God to be instruments of righteousness, then, then he's your master. But it's not that simple, is it? <laughs> It's a battle every day of who we're going to serve, our flesh or the Lord. And so if you could put a summary line under everything Paul says here in chapter 6, it's this. He's speaking to Christians. He says, look, you've been born again. You've been given a new life. You've been set free. You've been buried with Christ. You've been resurrected with Christ. You're a new person. Now live like it. I think the best illustration I've ever read about what Paul is talking about here uh, has to do with Lazarus. Remember Jesus' friend Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha? Jesus was away on business, and word came that Lazarus was sick, and before Jesus could get there, he had died. And his sisters were so upset, Jesus, if you'd just come sooner, you could have saved him. And there we read the shortest verse in the Bible at Lazarus' graveside, Jesus wept. And then Jesus did something amazing. He said, Lazarus, 
come forth. And guess what? Lazarus came forth. Jesus breathed life into him and he literally was raised from the dead. You might remember in that part of the world, the way they prepared bodies for burial, they wrapped them up in spices and sort of like a mummy. And so it's almost humorous as we think about Lazarus trying to move and talk now that, that he's alive. And so what they had to do, they had to take those grave clothes off, right? They had to loose him. Now, was he alive before they loosed him? Yeah, but he didn't have the freedom that he did once those were all. Do you know that Paul talks about sanctification in terms of grave clothes sometimes? Yes, we're alive now that we're born again, but over the course of our life, we have to get rid of those sinful habits that bind us. And as we take those grave clothes, those filthy garments off, we're to put on righteousness, put on clean garments. The scripture says, you know what we do though sometimes unbelievably? We put those filthy, stinking grave clothes on again. We don't have to, but we do. And that's why Paul says in chapter 7, the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. Who will deliver me from this body of, of death? But what Paul is talking about here is a trajectory over your lifetime of growth and separation of sin so that you could say at any one moment of your sanctification, I'm not what I want to be, but praise the Lord, I'm not what I used to be, right? And what we do for one another when we come week after week to Sunday school and to church and we call one another, encourage one another, visit one another in the hospital, we're saying, keep going, brother. Keep going, sister. Keep making progress. Keep moving. Keep moving forward until you die or Christ comes home. Will you commit to me, with me today to pray for one another in 2022, to be here, to encourage one another on to love and to good deeds, and to commit yourself that as you are presented with temptation, to consider yourself dead to sin. You don't have to obey that. But now you serve a new master, and you have the ability to walk in righteousness. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for every person who's truly been born again. That just as Lazarus was really dead and yet was made really alive, Lord, that we're a new person. We're alive with Christ and dead to sin. Help us to dwell on that truth often, especially at that, those moments of temptation and decision. Father, help us not to go back to presenting our bodies as tools or instruments for sin, but rather present them to God every day. Lord, even before we roll out of bed in the morning, would you have us say, Father, this is your day. I want to be used by you for your glory. And then throughout the day, continue with that thought. Father, I pray for our church family that corporately we would make discernible progress in sanctification in this year. Father, that only happens when the individual parts of the body are making progress. And so, Father, um, you're the judge. We're not. We can fool one another. But, Lord, we want and desire to walk closer to you in the year ahead. May you grant that to us, Father, as we serve you together. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.